So uh, we're getting closer to the end of the retreat formally. And uh, one never knows how one will uh, meet the end of anything, whatever it might be, the retreat or our jobs or, you know, some place that we live or whatever it is. And I read The New Yorker mostly. I like The New Yorker, but I like it a lot for the cartoons. And um, the, there was a cartoon in The New Yorker and it showed a man, kind of a distinguished guy, uh, lying in his bed with family around, you know, and, and the implication was he was dying and he was giving him his last words and, his, and the line under this image of him lying in his deathbed is, I should have bought more crap. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's funny, <laughs> and it's also not funny. It is both funny, humorous, and it's also, it, it's pointing to something. And one reason why we want to practice, in my understanding, Marana Sati, because we want to start to look at what does it mean to awaken to life? and to really live our life, and live our life how we would feel best satisfied at the end. And so if we want stuff, buy a lot of stuff and see if it makes us happy. Or whatever it, whatever it is we think we really want to do, I, I often suggest, oh, do it, and then you see. And Mostly I've seen it's not so great to just buy a lot of stuff. How we do it, you're gonna fix me. I'm getting I'm getting totally fixed tonight. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna click it. How's that? Can you hear me still? Please. And again, wave if, if I'm too quiet. Um, so, um, so I appreciated that cartoon when I saw it, and especially in relation to this retreat, which is about getting real about life and death. And I, I so highly value that about being real. And even, I'll, I'll tell you something more, um, you know, um, we, you know, we were uh, communicating with uh, Venerable Analyo about the retreat, and sometimes he asks us questions: "Is what do you think about this?" And we heard the tape before we even got the video, and he was a little nervous about some of what he'd put on the tape because it's very stark about what happens to body after it dies, or the insects that eat parts of the body and things like that, and uh, and. I always think, oh, that's good, because that's true. It's not just a bad thing or wrong thing or a mistake that our bodies get um, eaten by other animals. That's just life. That's what how life keeps going. 
And, and so to get real about things allows us to hopefully start to realize awakening and awaken to life itself. And so one of the people who I appreciate, a teeny bit of friend who I, who I know, a uh, woman teacher, Jennifer Wellwood, she wrote a poem. She said, my friends, let's grow up. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us what's real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the, let's dance the wild dance of no hope. It's a radical view, powerful view. And, you know, it's possible for all of us because we're, we're here and it's all happening on its own. Life and death. Or maybe I better say death and life because it keeps going. You know, we are looking at the power, the reality of death and of impermanence. And it changes our perspective. We get to align with reality. Not be in contention with reality or fight against it or deny it or pretend. But actually start to wake up through or with the way things are. And as was asked but you somebody here asked Analio about the deathless and Nikki talked about the deathless last night, right? It's unconditioned by death. And it's pointing at the kind of freedom or liberation or release 
or letting go that's possible for us as human beings. And it's, it is even talked about in very simple ways in Buddhism. It's talked about in mom, moment to moment letting go in this way. It's the understanding of arising and passing in a, in a very um, uh, immediate way. And, you know, if we, we were talking about having a longer retreat, yeah, if we could do a month or two or three, we would start to see the potential for each moment is simply arising and passing, simply arising and passing. And we are made up of each moment. We're simply arising and passing. And this is from a text by Nana Taloka. And uh, he wrote, in addition to death in the conventional sense, in Buddhism, marana refers to the rising and passing away of all mental and physical phenomena. This momentariness of existence, right? This moment, oh, this moment, this moment. This momentariness of existence is described in the Sudhimaga in the highest sense. Beings only have a very short instant to live a very short instant to live as a wagon wheel when rolling as well as standing still at any time rests on a single point of the rim, whether it's moving, still it's just resting on one point, one moment, or if it's standing, it's still one point, one moment. So, and so the image he's using and is used in Buddhism is like, it's like a wagon wheel when rolling as well as standing still at any time rests on a single point of the rim just so the life of beings endures only for the length of a single moment of consciousness. Only for a single moment of consciousness. When this is extinguished, so also is the being extinguished. For it is said, the being of the last moment of consciousness lived, now lives no longer, and will also not live again later. The being of the future moment of consciousness has not yet lived, has not lived yet, not, now also does not yet live, and will only live later. The being of the present moment of consciousness did not live previously, lives just now, but will not live again, will not live anymore. And it's pointing to something that one can actually perceive experientially at a certain level of meditative practice. There's just And it's so simple it, that we almost can't believe it. And we're so not used to that level of reality being known experientially. And yet it's part of the teaching of arising and passing. We're only here for a moment and then we're gone. And then we're here for a moment and we're gone. And 
and, and everything else, which is great, you know, past and future and who I am and what I've done and what I'm going to do, that's all really nice and that has its place on a certain level of consciousness, but this is a different level of consciousness and an important, it's the Buddha kept pointing at the phenomenology of experience at the deepest level. And so, the rising and passing and the balance of living our lives, seeing the momentariness and yet also, as we were talking earlier about the relative and the ultimate, the different truths, they're, they're equally true. We're not aware of the momentariness to deny everyday reality. And we're not, we don't want to be so attached to everyday reality that we forget or deny the momentariness. And so our practice happens, and I believe what, what uh, Jennifer Wellwood was saying about, you know, the true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. We, we give ourselves to life fully. Part of the dana is giving ourselves. It's not, it's sometimes it's giving our talents or our, or our capacities or our resources, but it's also giving our hearts fully to the truth, to the dharma. This is from a, a woman, Tubden Chodron, an American Tibetan nun. And she said, many people have the misconception that spiritual life or religious life is somewhere there in the sky. <laughs> it's a great line. It's somewhere in the sky, an ethereal or mystical reality, and that our everyday life is too mundane and not so nice. Often people think that to be a spiritual person, we must, we must ignore or neglect our everyday life and go into another special realm. To me, being a spiritual person means becoming a real human being. That's beautiful understanding. That we become real together. And it's one of the reasons I believe this form of retreat is powerful because we start being real with each other about death. And it's, you know, as, as people have said, often that's not what's in our families or our cultures or our communities or, or the conventional world we live in about being real about death. And it actually is true about many other things. We're not real together. And being real together is dukkha. Not being real together is dukkha. Because how else are we gonna wake up and also how else are we gonna really live together if we're not real together? And so letting go can come from engaging. A young Rinpoche said, he said, use everything fully, meaning use life fully, live life fully, and let go. <clears throat> and so 
Maranasati, mindfulness of death, also keeps pointing us archetypically at, as I've said, other things that we let go of or that die, times in our life, places in our life, people in our life. And I'm saying die not might not be literally a physical death, but things change. You know, friendships, even if they don't die, people go different ways. And so it's a kind of death or a kind of loss. Norman Cousins said, he said, death is not the greatest loss in life. Death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside while we live. And we all know this. And we've all felt it or tasted it. We, we wouldn't be here if we didn't know this, really. I, I don't, yeah. Because we know there's more potential for us as human beings and we've tasted it and we've seen it and we, we know it. Even if we can't say exactly what it is, we know it. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Uh, I believe. Right? And so one of the things that's uh, highly valued in Buddhism and can come with Maranasati practice is gratefulness. And it's a beautiful part of our heart and mind to be grateful, to appreciate what's been given. And and it's part of what we wake up to, which is how much has been given, really. Because sometimes we think about it in terms of things or something in particular, like, I don't you know, somebody gave me an iPad or something like that. And those, those are all nice. Those kind of things are nice. I like, you know, I'm not a big iPad guy, but I'm okay with it. And, but... Um, um, but there's something more fundamental when we look at life itself and what's been given. Like, where did you buy this body? Right? If it wasn't just given. Right? Or your heart or your mind. Right? Did you, you know, go to the drugstore or somewhere else? Or it, It's given. Or the 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 earth itself is given, or the twilight is given. Right now, it's being given, and we're receiving it. Or the night that's coming will be given to us, because one of the things that happens when we, or can happen, as we practice with death is we stop taking things for granted. And that's very important, very helpful as we wake up as human beings, is not to take things for granted, people for granted, uh, the nature for granted, reality for granted, love for granted. 
even not taking difficulty for granted, but seeing, oh, it's being offered even if it's not what we want. In Buddhism, in the Southeast Asia, the monks, nuns, begin the day with a chant of gratitude. And in this country, Native American elders begin ceremonies with grateful prayers to Mother Earth and Father Sky and the Four Directions and animal, plant, mineral brothers and sisters. Right? Just being in touch with the reality that's alive that they and we are part of. In Tibet, the monks and nuns give prayers of gratitude for the suffering that they've been given. Prayers of gratitude for the suffering they've been given. And some of the languages grant that I may have enough suffering to awaken in the deepest possible compassion and wisdom. Right? Grant that I must have enough suffer that I might have enough suffering to awaken in the deepest possible compassion and wisdom. Remember the four truths, the four noble truths, right? Is that there's suffering and there's cause suffering and the end of suffering, and they're all connected. You don't get to the end of suffering without suffering. It's life that takes us or offers the potential and the possibility for us to discover who and what we are and what's possible for us. And it's a gift. It's, a, it's the gift of life. <clears throat> this is from Joko Beck, who, is, uh, who was a Zen monk, nun. It's not the right term. It's not... Uh, I think it would be priest or priestess in, in Zen. She's, she was a priestess. She said, we can think of gratefulness in practice as a recognition of what is already here. Gratefulness as a practice in practice as a recognition of what is already here. That as we are present, aware, uh, open, intimate with ourselves and our environment, we discover that gratitude is part of our experience. Being present, being here, I'm adding out a little, being here. She says, being present is the gateway to gratitude. Being present is the gateway to gratitude. One of the great gifts of practice is that we do not take anything for granted. We don't know what will happen next. This is the don't know mind. And we're grateful with new eyes when we don't know. We're grateful with new eyes. And it's such a beautiful teaching she's offering us. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I used to do a practice with my daughter when she was young. Um, every once in a while we would do this practice where we would sit together, and, and she was young, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, somewhere around there. She would want to do a little practice. I'd say, okay, you really want to do a little practice? And she'd, yeah. So I said, okay, let's sit. We sit, and, and I said, okay, you look at me, I'll look at you. 
and you see that I'm not your dad, and I'll see that you're not my daughter. And she, we would do it for like 20 seconds. She'd say, okay, okay, that's enough. That's enough. And, and then later we talked about it. She said she loved having me see that, I, that she wasn't my daughter, that there was something more to her than just that role and my projection of whatever that role is. And of course she was my daughter, but she's not fi she wasn't fixed in that role, but it was, she was a little young for that I'm not her dad part. That wasn't, she wasn't quite ready for that. <laughs> She's better. Later, she would joke with me when, when she was a teenager, and I'd, I'd say, you have to do this. She'd say, you're not my dad. <laughs> and it was like, oh, you got me there. <laughs> it's true. Funny, I haven't thought of that in a long time. <laughs> uh, but it's really, you know, what Jokabek is saying, when we're really here, we're not in the past or in the future. We see with new eyes, these eyes, these very eyes that are looking, which again, I get to look from here and I'm talking about this, you all look kind of beautiful to me because, you know, I can see the aliveness that's magical, like that I don't know where the hell any of you came from, really. And you're here and, you know, we're all hanging out and it's wild. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the great teachers of, well, that's a funny way to put it, one of the great teachers of gratefulness um, is Brother David Stendhal Rost, who's, a, I believe, Benedictine monk? Is that, yeah, Benedictine monk. And beautiful, beautiful being. I mean, you know, beautiful. And he said, look closely and you will find that people are happy because they are grateful. The opposite of gratefulness is just taking everything for granted. And he goes on, he says, as we as we learn to give thanks for all of life and death. Right? I love that he says that. So, as we learn to give thanks for all of life and death, for all of this given world of ours, we find a deep joy. It is the joy of trust, the joy of faith, in the faithfulness at the heart of all things. It is the joy of gratefulness in touch with the fullness of life. And it's, it's one of the things that can come with Maranasati practice because life is momentary, whether in that arising and passing perception or even the fact we're going to live, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. And then it's gone. It's like... And it's beautiful to be alive, it's beautiful. So I said I would talk a little about my own near-death experience, and, and I will. Uh, partly, really, it hit me again when he said, we learn to give thanks for all of life and death. Because I had a, 
many of you know this, but some of you don't. I had a very serious bicycle accident going down a big hill on the Buddhist bike pilgrimage, which I'd done before. I'd even done that hill before. And, and uh, But something happened. The bike wobbled and I lost control and hit badly and, um, and had to be helicoptered to a hospital and spent five weeks in the hospital. And it wasn't clear at first what was going to happen, if I was going to live or die. And uh, it wasn't like I was on... Uh, as he was talking about yesterday, it wasn't like my heart had stopped that, but it just, they didn't know what was gonna happen. And, uh, and you know, the doctors of course said, we think he's gonna be okay, but they didn't know. And, uh, and, and of course I didn't know, cause I, I had a brain injury. And I had what's called a mild traumatic brain injury, which is very, very serious. I don't, can't imagine what a not mild, traumatic brain injury is because really Eugene got unplugged fully quite quite fully Eugene was gone even after I um, it was clear that I was going to live Eugene was gone and it was very uh, powerful what happened but it wasn't like I was thinking it was powerful that's how gone I was even when I regain consciousness, I wasn't thinking, oh, that was a bad bicycle accident. I didn't have that capacity to reflect in that kind of way. And I was in the hospital and I, I, I was still Eugene because I didn't like the hospital at all, my, my family tells me. Um, and, uh, but there was, and it was a, bad thing. I don't recommend it at all. But so much good happened in the accident, even in the hospital, in the middle of the night. And this is where the, the it's not the same as the gentleman was talking about yesterday. I didn't have those experiences of the light and tunnel. But I had other experiences which I've never had before and um, were totally outside, later I, I, as I remembered them, were totally outside of my um, understanding of what was even possible. And it was, as I often say, wild and, and good. That's the paradox. Good things were happening. Even, and my family didn't know this at all. Even when I told my wife six months later, she, she was, she said, what the hell are you talking about? Because she was dealing with the, the dukkha of me being in the hospital and them not knowing what's going to happen. I wasn't dealing with anything like that, but I was in different worlds. And, and you know, I, I don't know those were bardos or anything, but they were different worlds that opened up because of the accident and the whatever near-death experience I had. And it was, uh, and I did, I'll say one thing that happened that was very, that really this reminds me, giving thanks for all life and death, is at some point I knew, and it wasn't like I thought and figured it out, I just knew I could die or I could live. And I didn't know which was going to happen. 
but I knew that if I lived, it would be good. And I knew if I died, it would be good. And that wasn't me figuring anything out. There wasn't enough of me to figure. There was just a knowing life was good, death was good. And why? I don't, I don't have any, and I don't need any understanding of why. It just was true for me, and it stayed with me. And so, and then all kinds of other things have happened since then, because it was a long process of the brain coming back online, really. And then, um, and there was, you know, dukkha and sukha with all of it. It's all, uh, you know, it's all part of practice. <clears throat> but it does, I don't feel afraid of death. I have no desire to be in a hospital, though I will, <laughs> I'm clear about that. I mean, really, it, they were, I won't even tell you, you know, the hospitals are hospitals. And, and that's, I have a tremendous respect for anybody in those professions because they're doing bodhisattva work, right? They're caring for people who are suffering tremendously and they're doing their best, you know, no matter whether I like it or not. So I feel very grateful to be alive and also the grateful, it's not even a big deal, Great, it's just, you know, I'm, I it's it's so simple for me to be grateful for um, anything, really. How I feel these days, because it's all kind of wild that anything's here at all, and that may be because of my accident, totally, or maybe because I did practice, or I don't know why, but it's here, and I do believe practice has supported that kind of gratefulness for life, you know, gratefulness for a breath. I love, you know, really, I, I'm a, I was a little envious of you because I want to do more retreat right now. I'm not quite at the uh, Venerable Analio phase, but, but I just did a retreat back east at IMS and it was good and, you know, I, I want to do more. I just feel like, oh, just to sit, just to see, what is this? What is this that's here, that's breathing, that's thinking, that's feeling, that's hearing, that's smelling, that tasting? What is it that knows all of that, right? And of course, some people might say the mind, or, you know, but again, what the hell is the mind? You know, it's just something made up. It's an idea. And of course, the modern interpretation of all of it is it's the brain. And, you know, but I love what Thomas Fleischmann said about, yeah, even when the brain, there was nothing in the brain, these people knew something. So what do you make of that? And I just don't want to be deceived by the brain technology. And because I think reality is much wilder than science, even. Now I've got to weave back to gratitude, okay? <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, 
And so, uh, really, what I want to come back to is what Tubden Chung children's children said about being real and being a real human being. What Jennifer Wellwood said: it's it's part of what we're doing is learning how to be real in a real way, not in imagined way or projected way or fantasized way or what we're supposed to be, but actually to be real with this aliveness that's so. Where does it come from, this aliveness, really? So one of my favorite Zen teachers, Ryokan, who is just uh, like one of the all-time beautiful beings I've ever met. And of course, just to be clear, I haven't formally met him, but I met him. He's from the 1700s or something. Ryokan, when he was... Uh, near the end of his life, right near the end of his life, he'd, he'd, uh, he'd been a, uh, a priest and a monastic, and he um, fell in love with a, a woman who was a monastic, a nun, a priestess, and uh, named Taishan, Taishan. And they had this love affair, but it was totally platonic wasn't physical, but it was a total love affair. If you read it, it's like, whoa, these people are, you know, it's happening. And they're just follow their um, precepts, but their, their heart connection is so beautiful. And so near the end of his life, he writes her, he says, when, when I sighed, the one I longed for, oh, this is after she's come, when, when I sighed, the one I longed for has finally come with her now, I have all I need. Right? I mean, that sounds like a nice love affair, doesn't it? You know? And then, and then she wrote, uh, after that, she said, we monastics are said to overcome the realm of life and death. We monastics are said to overcome the, the realm of life and death, yet I cannot bear the sorrow of our parting. Right? Because she knows he's going to die soon. And then he writes back a very Zen poem. He says, everywhere you look, the crimson leaves scatter one by one, front and back. Right? And it's beautiful, the poetry of impermanence and of life and death and of being connected and totally giving oneself to life and death. One thing we wanted to offer a little bit is both around gratefulness and death practice. And you've already, we've already given you a lot of different skillful means to work with. And you could use any of them or uh, all of them. You know, you can wake up every day and you could just reflect on that you could die today, right? This could be the day, your last day. And it doesn't mean it has to be maudlin or sor sorrowful. 
It's like, okay, if this is my last day, what do I want to do? How do I want to live it? If this is the last time I talk to somebody, how real? Can I be real? Can I be myself? Can I be true? Or just recognize that death is all around all the time, right? You look for yourself at the crimson leaves, right? That are scattering. Or when you drive by a cemetery, look at it. Those are human beings in there. Or they were human beings who are in there now. And it's very powerful practice. If you want to do more Muranasati practice, walk into a cemetery and sit down for a while. I used to do this for a good amount. It's very interesting to give oneself to that world and see how it touches one. And then, of course, the, the other side of Maranasati and, you know, contemplating death is awakening to life and really looking at um, what are you grateful for every day? Or what are you grateful for today? Just one thing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. You know, I'm always grateful when the warriors win. I'm totally good with that. And, you know, and I don't expect it. And I, you know, of course, if they lose, I actually don't care much. I love to see them win. I'm totally grateful that they're so um, beautiful, really beautiful team, beautiful Sangha-like team, and also beautiful. They're very, um, they have a tremendous amount of ethics, the warriors. And it's always, I always love that when people who are in that kind of situation, meaning they're playing a game, is all that's happening, right? They're playing a game. If, if you don't know, I'm talking about the Golden State Warriors and, and basketball. I forget that not everybody knows what the hell I'm talking about. Um, um, but they're, uh, but they give their, they give themselves fully to it, and they care about one another and they also know it's a game which is so good because they don't even though they take it totally seriously they don't take it too seriously hmm. so yeah it's good to be here it's good it's good to be here can be one of the things we're grateful for when we wake up in the morning. Or it's just good to be. Let's even cut off the here, just the be, the beingness of what we are, right? Remember, we're human beings. We're not just human doings. We're human beings. It's the beingness that is so beautiful. And it's... You can see it in each person. There's something that's just magical or or it could be a little, I don't know the right words to use, mystical or mysterious or wondrous or wild. <clears throat> so... 
here's another version of appreciating life. This is from E.E. E. Cumming. E.E. E. Cummings. He says, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. I th and I'll, I'm going to repeat. It's the, all the repeats aren't in there, but I like to repeat. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day for the leaping, greenly spirits of trees and the blue, true dream of sky and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today. And this is the sun's birthday. And this is the birthday of life and love and wings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing any lifted from the no of all nothing, nothing? How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any lifted from the no of all nothing, human merely being, doubt, unimaginable you. It's a capital Y on the U. Now the ears of my ears are awake and the eyes of my eyes are open. I've spent some time with Venerable Analyo and appreciate uh, his teaching very much. But I, I love today when he kept pointing at the lightness, right? That, and it's similar to what Suzuki Roshi said. He said, he said, uh, Suzuki Roshi said it this way. He said, our practice is so serious that we shouldn't take it too seriously. And Analyo, you notice, takes his practice very seriously and also lightly. And so I hope that we can all go home and discover what it is to wake up wherever we are. with whatever's happening because you'll be there wherever it is. We're not really in the past or future ever. We're only here, wherever here is. And so our practice supports the here-ness and the potential of what's already here. And so I'll end with one of my favorite Zen songs, a song of Zazen by Hakuin. He says, all beings by nature, all beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. 
I really I should just stop there. That's the whole teaching. It's so beautiful. All beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, there is no Buddha. How sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without an end. Gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond mere doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing right now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place, the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. Let's sit for a minute, please, before we end. have a period of walking practice now. <laughs> 